0: Don't panic, listeners. No matter what the White Rabbit says, you are right on time for this episode of SSR. This week we are discussing Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, so I couldn't help but include that clip from the 1951 Disney movie that so many of us grew up with. The source material, Carroll's novel, was published in 1865, and has since inspired seemingly endless reimaginings and a whimsical aesthetic all its own. Even if you haven't actually read Alice in Wonderland, you definitely know the story. It's just one of those things. Over the next hour, you will hear my guests and I get into some of the details of the story as it appears on the page. We chat about how it functions as social commentary, why Alice is so appealing as a character, and the novel's questionable origin story. We explore themes, like the absurdity of rules, abuses of power, the transition from childhood to adolescence, and the privilege that comes with boredom. My guest this week for our journey down the rabbit hole and into wonderland is Roselle Lim. Roselle is the critically acclaimed author of Natalie Tan's Book of Luck and Fortune, Vanessa Yu's Magical Paris Tea Shop, and most recently, Sophie goes Lonely Hearts Club. She lives on the North Shore of Lake Erie and always has an artistic project on the go. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Roselle Writer. SSR is on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod and on Facebook when you search for the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. I love hearing from you in those places, so please don't be shy. If you're enjoying the podcast, I invite you to share about it on your social media platform of choice. This is a great way to help spread the word and to offer me feedback too. Don't forget to tag me so I can see it and share. If you want to get even more involved in the SSR community, I also invite you to join our Patreon family. Patreon is a platform that connects creators like me with fans of what they create. For just a few dollars every month, you get to take an active role in keeping your favorite independently produced content going strong. And there are exclusive rewards in it for you. SSR patrons are eligible for all kinds of perks, including an invitation to the SSR Discord group, SSR merch, book selection input, bonus episodes, monthly newsletters, video reading recaps, and more. At the $5 and $10 levels, you also get membership in our SWR, that's Shit We Read, book club, which is tons of fun. In September, we are reading Portrait of a Thief, so it's the perfect time to jump in. Learn more and become a patron at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Shout out to all of the patrons tuning in now. Episode 208 is brought to you by Kensington's newest title, Twice a Quinceañera by Yamil Said Mendez. This Own Voices multicultural rom-com is the first novel featuring an adult character subverting the quinceañera trope by throwing a bash for herself after the typical age of 15. Author Yamil-Mendez is already a big name in the kidlit and YA communities as the recipient of the 2021 Pura Belpre Young Adult Author Medal and an inaugural recipient of the Walter Dean Myers Grant supporting diverse authors. Plus, her 2020 YA novel Furia was a Reese pick. Twice a quinceañera puts the spotlight on an accomplished adult woman who chooses to turn a hard breakup into a celebration of herself, and I have a feeling you are going to love it. You can find it wherever books are sold. Find out more at kensingtonbooks.com. We all rely on Amazon for a lot of things, but since audiobooks are delivered to your phone immediately no matter where you buy them, they are a great place to make the switch to independent sellers. That's where Libro.fm comes in. The audiobooks you get will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys, but you'll be supporting indie booksellers when you buy them. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm, and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Please don't hesitate to let me know if you find any audiobooks that you absolutely love. Now let's go to the show. <coughs> freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi Roselle, welcome to SSR. Hi Allie, thank you so much for having me. We are talking about a real classic today and a book that a lot of listeners have asked me about over the years. It's a book that I actually never read, although I've been exposed to the story, as you kind of have to be if you are just like a citizen of the world. We're talking about Alice in Wonderland, Roselle, and I'd love to jump into this conversation by hearing a little bit about your relationship to this material, what memories you have of the book or the adaptations, and why you wanted to go down this rabbit hole, if you will, with me today.
1: When I was a kid, I always related to Alice being like a dreamer and wanting the world to work in a different way that it's functioning right now. And that's why it resonated with me. And I've read uh, Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, and I just, I loved all of the adaptations. I watched all of them, including the one with Kate Beckinsale. I don't know if you've ever seen that version yet.
0: No, okay, you're gonna have to tell me about this because I'm ashamed to admit that I've only seen the, the original Disney animated Cartoon version, so you have to fill me in on some of these other adaptations. So the ones that are the most recent
1: ones that I know is the ones with Mia and Tim Burton. Yes,
0: which I'm told is the most true to the original, like core heart of of Lewis Carroll's book. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well, because in in my research for our conversation today, um, that kept coming up again and again, which is that Tim Burton was the one who really like captured that original spirit.
1: I think the reason why he did it is through aesthetics. If you looked visually at the film, the colors, the it's just his dark his dark, like kind of gothic y, like what he's known for is like throughout that those films. And they suit it so well because there is so much of an underlying darkness in the original material. Because if you think about it, like one of the stories is the the walrus and the carpenter, right? And then eating the oysters. I mean, like they're supposed to be babies, but like you, like I love oysters. I would have done it, but like not in that setting. You know, when I know they're like babies.
0: Yeah, totally. Okay, so and then which is the Cape Beckinsale? and Sale? Is that separate from Tim Burton? This one's, I think, BBC.
1: This was years oh. and years ago. So if you want to watch something kind of obscure, okay, ish. I think it might be on Prime, but yeah, it's one of the most, one of the more obscure versions of it. And it's brighter. See, the difference between this version and the Burton version is that the Burton version embraces the darkness, but infuses so much color, even though it's such a dark, it's got such a dark tone. Yeah. This one, the Kate Beckinsale one, is very bright like very bright. It doesn't have any of the darkness, which I think it loses
0: a bit of its teeth. Okay. So I have a lot of watching to do now after we finish talking today, because while I now feel like I'm a little bit more caught up having read the original book, I I mean, the, the depths you can get into with the adaptation history of this is amazing. Like, listeners, I would encourage you to just like Wikipedia this one, because it is one of the longer Wikipedia entries I have come across in a long time. Even just the section about the many ways that this, that this story has just proliferated. There was a, a museum exhibit in 2021 in London that also got a lot of press where they covered a lot of different aesthetic renderings of Alice. And so I came across a couple of articles about that, which I will link to in the show notes if, if listeners want to check it out. But point being, like this is a conversation about Alice that just keeps going and going and going over the years. And it'll be interesting to see how different creators continue to interpret Lewis Carroll's original work in in decades and centuries to come. So Roselle, would you call yourself an Alice in Wonderland fan?
1: i am in that like in the disneyverse that's
0: the one that i use as my avatar on my my disney oh okay no that is so this is real stuff i think mine is um i think i'm Belle.
1: but yeah i had to use alice because of the connection that i have and on like a tangent on a different tangent this you know disneyland in tokyo has the better adorable merch compared to north america when it comes to alice stuff
0: oh really like a different look or is it just more options it's just cuter
1: i don't know what it's it's a, maybe it's a kawaii culture but it's just it's cuter and i'm like why isn't it here i don't want to pay import fees for a shopper over there <laughs> to bring me the cute merch the you know the alice merch that i'm looking for
0: yeah i mean listeners if you know where to get the cute alice merch please let us know because i'm curious to see what that looks like i'm gonna have to go check it out roselle so I'll share a little bit more about my limited experience with this material before we talk about the book. As I said, I never read this book, like the original Lewis Carroll story. I was a big Disney kid. I have a very clear memory of the like dozens and dozens of Disney VHS spines all lined up on a shelf in my family room when I was a kid. I don't know where they are. Not that I would have any place to actually play them now because I don't have a VHS player and we do have Disney Plus so I could go watch any of these movies anytime but there was something about like having the actual tangible VHS tapes that was really cool and so I did own Alice in Wonderland it was not one of my favorites I don't know why I was much more drawn to like the classic princess stories I always liked Alice as a character and I think that I enjoyed the beginning of Alice in Wonderland like I loved those visuals of Alice dreaming on the golden afternoon and then falling down the rabbit hole and those first few moments of her time there in Wonderland, getting big and getting small and eating the different things and all of the other sort of wacky situations that she encounters in the first little bit of her time in Wonderland, but I feel like it always sort of lost my interest after that, and so it wasn't one that I watched like again and again and again, I also remember that I had like the little golden book picture book of Alice in Wonderland, which had those bright colors. And like the art in in the Alice in Wonderland cartoon is so fun and beautiful and fresh and different, I think, than a lot of the other Disney cartoons that we were seeing even at that time. And so I do remember like loving the visual aspects of the world of Alice in Wonderland. I've always been an animal lover. So I thought it was so fun that it was this world populated with different creatures that did different things and were surprising. And I also think that something that was appealing about Alice as a protagonist, which is perhaps why I always enjoyed the beginning of the Disney movie, is that she was just like a normal girl. Like like I said, I, I tended to be drawn more to the princesses when I was a kid myself, but when I reflect on why I enjoyed parts of Alice's story, Maybe it's because she was just like a little girl like me in a blue dress and a black headband waiting to be swept into some adventure. And that's exactly what we get in both the cartoon and in the book, which we've read for today.
1: For me, it's it's strange because its its appeal grew for me over time. Like, believe it or not, because when I was little, I was like, oh, wouldn't it be great to be transported into a different world? It's a bit of a portal fantasy in there, right? Yeah. So I thought that that would be fantastic. But then as I got older, I'm like, wow, like this dealt with, like there's a mean girl scene in there with the flowers and Alice. And you're like, hmm, yeah. this is still relevant. This was done how many years ago about class? And then they have obviously like a, a wackadoo, like, you know, dictator or fascist, like off with our heads. Like, you could bring in all of these, like, you know, it's like social commentary, class, social, all of that. Like, that's the stuff that you kind of pick up when you're a little bit older and you're like,
0: huh, like that makes so much sense. Yeah, I do feel like I want to go back and watch the movie, the the cartoon again now, having read the book, because When I was reading the book, I was sort of underlining all of these details that I knew I wouldn't have understood when I was a kid, like small things like the caterpillar smoking a hookah. And I remember in the movie when I was a kid, like seeing the caterpillar smoking something that I wasn't familiar with as a four or five or six year old. But now I'm like, oh, I know what a hookah is. And that gives a different kind of context even like the references to to mushrooms in this book, like there are all of these little details that I think having a lack of understanding of them, like it didn't necessarily take away from my ability to enjoy the parts of the movie that I did enjoy when I was growing up. But now that I understand that there are some of these darker, more adult undertones, I think I would probably appreciate the movie in a different way.
1: Definitely. Like you think about it and you're like, there was drug use during this whole thing, but I wasn't really, like if you think about it, and I know you can interpret the whole thing like as a manic LSD kind of trip and then that she goes in and out of as well because there's such a surreal quality to everything.
0: Yeah, reading the book, like the experience of reading it felt trippy. Like I, and I knew that that, I knew that was coming because I'd heard that from a few people and I've read enough about, Lewis Carroll on this book over the years to know a little bit about what I was getting into. But I was shocked as I was reading it by how wacky the world was. Like I kept having to reread sections and this is not a long book. The, um, The edition that I have is like maybe 100 pages and it's not long but it took me a while to read because I kept having to revisit sections. And then I was reading through a few plot summaries online this morning just to make sure that I sort of had all my ducks in a row. And I have to tell you, Roselle, I was like, I I don't think that I read the same book. Like I already had forgotten sections of the plot because it is so wacky and trippy. And I finished it two days ago. So I feel like sort of big picture reading the book feels like you're a little bit on a drug trip. And then there are actual plot points where you're like, are they on drugs? Like it's this very sort of meta situation going on. The best part about this book is that I'm
1: going to put it on parallel with Dracula, in that it's it's an old book, but it's written in a way that's relatable. It's not like Shakespeare where you need a dictionary right beside you going, What the heck did they mean by this phrase? Yeah. What you're sitting there they rethinking and trying to analyze is what is is this a metaphor or what exactly does this mean like that to me is a different kind of like literary critique than sitting here going what is this phrase like i i remember reading shakespeare and i'm like i don't understand this please give me the cliff notes oh that's what they mean you've insulted my brother oh okay i get it but (laughs) you're not getting that from reading this book like on the whole it's pretty easy to read yes like there are some stuff that's trippy that it's not on a prose level like it's like pretty like readable just like i find with dracula it's pretty readable even though it's an old text right yeah so i find it like a lot more interesting that it is that we're stopping not because i don't understand what this means but you're trying to construe it like what is the author trying to say like this is an interesting plot twist why why do you think they he decided to write it this way or what did he want to like show? Because he's doing like criticism obviously of class and all of that other stuff and in the background, right? Like it's just really fascinating to me that way.
0: Yeah, I think that if I read this again, even in a couple of weeks, I would probably interpret it in an entirely different way. It's like one of those books where it's so simple. Like you said, it's not hard to read. I don't feel like I need to parse the language in any way beyond the fact that there's just some like fun wordplay. Yeah. It's more about thinking through like what the author is trying to say. And I, as usual, listeners did some digging on the history of the author and of the book. Roselle, do you know much about Lewis Carroll and how this book came to be?
1: It's it's probably my subconscious, unfortunately, right now, because it's like two weeks down to launch. My brain is like a bag of like if you were to put a bag of marbles, <laughs> put it in a plastic bag, get a knife, cut the bag open. That's the state my brain is in. I'm pretty proud of myself that I still remember a lot of you know, the imagery and the stuff. Yeah. But the background I remember reading up on it before but like, I'll probably go, "Uh huh? Yeah, I remember that when you're
0: talking about it. Great. Well, you can do that because I I've got us I have some details here that I can share with us. So The book was written by Lewis Carroll, which was not his real name, but it was published in 1865. It is one of the best-known works of Victorian literature, and I learned quite a bit about Victorian literature sort of more generally while I was preparing for this episode and about the Victorian fascination with childhood and what childhood means and what it means to become an older child, what it means to sort of transition out of childhood, and Alice in Wonderland was a really important sort of turning point in Victorian literature because it was the first time that an author wrote for kids without this intention to teach them a lesson and more because he wanted to entertain or delight his readers. So Lewis Carroll is credited with starting that new era and I think that that speaks to a lot of the the YA and the, the middle grade and just the kid lit in general that we read today. There's such a, a wide range of kind of intense with authors um, today who are writing for younger readers. Sure, there are writers who are focused on moralizing, but I think by and large, contemporary YA and kid lit authors are much more interested in entertaining their readers than they are in kind of lecturing at them and giving them a lesson to walk away from. So Alice in Wonderland was inspired by a specific day in 1862, three years before the book was published, Um, And this is the afternoon that has kind of been identified in history as the quote golden afternoon that we come to think of as the beginning of the actual story of Alice in Wonderland. On this day, Lewis Carroll was riding in a rowboat with his friend, the Reverend Robinson Duckworth, which sounds like a fake name from like some Victorian TV show or something. But Lewis Carroll and Reverend Robinson Duckworth were rowing up a river with three young girls Who were the daughters of another friend of theirs named Henry Liddell and his daughters were named Lorena, Edith, and Alice. And I will say that there's a lot of speculation about Lewis Carroll's relationship with these girls. Um, I did hear from a few listeners who DM'd me and were like, "Mm, just so you know, I've read some funky stuff about kind of the origin story for Alice in Wonderland It appears based on my research, there's nothing like that specifically calls out an inappropriate relationship between Lewis Carroll and Alice Liddell, but there are a lot of photographs that he took of her. Like he seems to have been sort of fascinated with Alice and they did have this like special friendship that probably is outside of the bounds of what we as adults in 2022 would think is smart or safe or again appropriate. But anyway, knowing that that was sort of happening in the background, I will say that uh, Lewis Carroll was known among the Liddells as a great storyteller. And so on this golden afternoon in 1862, the girls asked him to tell them a story and he told them what became the inspiration for Alice in Wonderland. The original story was called Alice's Adventures in Underground. And this was the first time that Alice asked Lewis Carroll to write a story down. He told them a lot of stories, but this was the first time she wanted him to really, like, make it permanent so that she could read it later on. He spent two years writing it down, and then it was at the Liddell home, and I found an anecdote somewhere that someone was in the Liddell home and, and stumbled on the manuscript, like, sitting around, and they were like, oh, this should be published for, for broader distribution. But that is kind of how this whole thing started. From what I discovered, Alice in Wonderland is about twice as long as the original Alice's Adventures in Underground story. There were, of course, new antics added, new characters. But yeah, the whole thing, this whole cultural phenomenon that we've all come to know in so many different iterations was inspired by an afternoon on a rowboat and this little girl, Alice. And again, I do wanna drive home the fact that it's likely that there was something inappropriate happening between Lewis and Alice. I don't know how inappropriate, but he seems to have just really been into her in some way. Um, and she was the inspiration for for this book. Someone messaged me, and I don't remember the title of the book now, but um, one of my listeners messaged me that she recently read, I believe it's a novel about, that's sort of inspired by Lewis Carroll and Alice Liddell, and the notion that a lot of the book was predicated on Lewis Carroll's desire for Alice Liddell to never grow up and to always stay in this like teenage body, which I thought was both disturbing and interesting now that I've read the book.
1: Well, now that you mentioned that theme, I mean, think about
0: it, J.M. Barry, Peter Pan. Yeah. The whole oh. idea of never growing up as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is, a whole, that's a whole other uh, sort of similarly grim origin story disturbing story behind the story listeners I did an episode on Peter Pan which I'll link in the show notes if you want to go check it out but I think that um I mean it is really it's really special that like there's this girl that was the inspiration for Alice like somewhere in England like Alice Liddell became this Alice that we have all come to know and love in some way. Originally Alice was brunette which I thought was kind of interesting. It was only in the Disney 1951 cartoon that Alice's blonde hair became sort of the standard for her and the 2021 museum exhibit that I mentioned earlier on again showcases like all of these different aesthetic renderings of Alice which is pretty cool and like the different even like editorial fashion shoots that have been inspired by the Alice in Wonderland aesthetic and the moments more recently where Black models have been brought in to fill the Alice aesthetic and and play that role and how important it's been to, to bring some diversity to this image that so many of us have grown up with. So it is, it's really special because often when when we cover books on the podcast from like even the 60s or 70s i'm like oh wow like this book is so old but every once in a while we get to cover a book that's like really old and this book is from 1865 and has so much history and has has come to take on a life of its own beyond just the pages of the book that lewis carroll wrote and it's hard to capture all of that in an hour podcast recording, but we can do our best. And at least now we have a little bit of a sense of where it all started. Does all of that sort of track with what you have heard about the origin story of Alice in Wonderland, Roselle?
1: It is, and I, you reminded me of another version, okay. like a recent version, but this one is in video game form. So if you're a gamer, there is a game called Alice Madness Returns where you play as Alice Liddell, who happens to, who is a brunette, Okay, but you are in Wonderland, but there's also just a little bit of um an undertone that you are in maybe in the real life in an asylum.
0: Oh, that's so interesting.
1: It is. It's an older game. I believe you can play it on Steam. Okay. If there are any listeners who love gaming, but it's like it's a fantastic one. The visuals are excellent. And it reminds me of the movie with Emily Browning. I'm trying to remember that one. But yes, there's this movie with Emily Browning. I don't know if you know that one where she was in an
0: asylum, but she's in an alternate world where she's in a squad with girls. Okay, yeah, I'm not familiar with that movie or with the game, but I know we have some gamers in the audience, so I'll be anxious to hear if anybody else is familiar with with this game. That sounds really cool and dark and spooky, but also Alice inspired like so many other things are. So I will say that in reading this book, I was impressed by how how true to the original source material the Disney film was. And I know I keep referring to that adaptation, but that's because that's my point of reference and I think is the point of reference that a lot of people will come to this episode with. And I felt like the Disney movie hits most of the main points that I saw in the book. So I I don't know how much we need to get into like the specific plot points of this story. I'm sort of more interested in talking about like the themes of, of Alice in Wonderland and what Lewis Carroll was trying to explore and how it it communicates different things to people at different ages. So I think that maybe we can just start by talking about what Alice in Wonderland says about like the transition from childhood to adolescence, because I think that touches on that potentially eerie, icky origin story that we were talking about before with Lewis Carroll's fascination with Alice Liddell at a a particular age and like maybe wanting to capture her in that age forever. But I was also reading a few other think pieces about how Alice in Wonderland really is a metaphor for transitioning into a different phase of your life uh, when you are Alice's age. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that, about that, Roselle, and I'd love to start there.
1: I think it is about growing up in that when we start the story, we see her with her, I think her elder sister yeah. and Dinah, and she's supposed to be paying attention to lessons, right? And she's like, no, I don't want any of this. I just, I just want to be in a world of my own. And then when she finally does get into this world of her own, she realizes it also has its own absurd rules that she has to follow that are even worse than the ones that she thinks are in real life. And I think it's it's about that. It's about rules. It's about confronting authority mm-hmm. and what you do at the face of authority. And it's, like like I said, the, the roses in the garden, the mean girls thing, that's something that you have to deal with, like having to deal with society and how society is not always fair and how they will judge you, you know, the difference in classes, all of this stuff. And I just, I find that, I find it interesting that I to me that I I believe that it's his interpretation Carol's interpretation of what adulthood like all like you take all of the absurdities of adulthood and basically it is wonderland
0: yeah I want to dig a little bit further into the rules piece because both as a writer and as a reader I found that really fascinating because while I was reading the book I thought a lot about one of my professors in my MFA program, who would tell us that you can create any rules you want in a world that you are putting on paper, whether it's a fantasy world, a sci-fi world, or even if it's a contemporary setting that still needs to be laid out clearly for your readers. You can have any rules you want, but you have to make sure your reader knows what they are so that it makes sense. And. I kept thinking about that as I was reading this book because I'll be honest with you, I did not know what any of the rules were in this world. And I think that part of that is because the rules were always changing. And so maybe this is a case where that, where that actually makes sense because the rules are that there are no rules. And like that's kind of what Lewis Carroll is trying to show that like in the quote, real world, however you conceive of that in your head, if that even is a real thing, um, in the real world, like the rules never stay the same for very long. And even if they do, if you go to a different place, that place is going to have different rules. And even if you're in the same place, a new group of people will come in and they're going to have different rules. So the rules are going to change in relation to where you are, who you're with, the way you're showing up that day and all these other things. And so I was kind of wrestling with like how I try to think of building worlds as a writer and knowing what I know from like this particular teacher of mine but also realizing that this is a case where a lack of rules is actually kind of the point.
1: It really is. I think for his world building, it's it's absurdity. He has extremely, if if I recall correctly, in the novel, there were very, very like, there were rules, but they're few and far in between, and they don't make sense. Like, for instance, the whole, if you want to go under this mushroom, the left side will make you bigger, or I can't remember which side, but basically, one side makes you bigger, one side makes you smaller. Right? It's things like that. Or um, when she had to do the, when she meets with the, um, the dodo for the first time, and they're all running. They're all running. She's like, why am I running? And they're just <laughs> running, right? Running. Yeah. And it's all of these things where some like you always have somebody making the rules arbitrarily. And I think that there is a lot of that truth of that and still relevant right now that there are just some rules that just make no sense. Like who says you have to use a flamingo and a hedgehog to play croquet and that the, you know, the cards are like the wickets.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The croquet scene was really what got me with the rules situation because it's probably the point in the novel where we are, most explicitly fed this notion that like oh we're all just making it up as we go along because we see Alice like actually asking questions in real time about what she is doing and what she's supposed to be doing and what the rules of the game are and the other creatures that are playing this game with her are sort of like I don't know or they're just like answering her randomly and that scene of course happens almost at the very end of the book and so I think I've been like a little bit frustrated if I'm being honest with the lack of rules up until I got there because I was just like this feels this feels like a fairy tale fantasy which is fun but as an adult reader I was like I'm just like not getting it but then during the croquet scene I was like oh I get it there are no rules and there haven't been any rules this whole time
1: my takeaway was there are no rules but If you're the one in power, you make the rules and it benefits you the whole time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, let's talk more about the Queen of Hearts because I read a little bit about Lewis Carroll's political statements and how he was really trying to criticize the monarchy when he wrote this book and positioning the Queen of Hearts specifically as this tyrant who has so many rules and is very quick to punish her subjects but doesn't actually do anything and is really all about the pomp and circumstance of her position. We see that especially with the white rabbit when from the very beginning of the book, he's like, I'm late, I'm late, I'm late, like I have to get to the queen. And then when Alice finally does make it into the garden where she is meeting the royal guard and like the cards just like fall on their faces when the queen and king walk by, like there's this big parade, just like again, the pomp and circumstance and the sort of flashiness of being in the presence of a monarch, you can tell that the queen just loves that. And I remember that from the movie as well, just like the glamour that the queen seems to just feed off of, but we don't really know what she's doing. And then in the book, we see this this trial take place at the very end. And I'm like, okay, like now we're really going to see, we're, we're going to get down to business now. Like this is where the queen's going to show us how she queens. But again, there are no rules. Like we don't really know who's on trial. We don't know how the trial is supposed to function. She just wants to be there presiding because again, she's the queen.
1: This is so completely relevant, honestly, to modern day yeah. right now. Because I remember with all of this Brexit and stuff happening in over at the UK, they did a poll of um younger younger people. And the younger people are fine with the monarchy going away. It's the older it's the older like generations who want to retain it. Mm. which I find extremely interesting. Like, again, fascinating because you're like, oh, well, what did did she actually do? Like, it's basically what they're saying. What does she actually do except collect money, you know, pomp and circumstance and all of this stuff. Yeah. Like, it's, it's really relevant.
0: Yeah, she likes to show up to her own parties and her own croquet games and her own trials just if she gets to be the center of attention, but she's not actually prepared to do anything when she gets to any of those places. And when anybody questions her she immediately is is off with their heads yep. to them and she doesn't actually end up beheading anybody which i which i thought was also a point worth noting like they just sort of round up all of these different creatures that she has promised to behead because she likes the process of like saying off with their heads and alice actually has has a moment of reflection where she's like it's sort of weirder that anybody's alive here if she's actually beheading all of these people because everybody's here and at the same time she's threatening everybody with beheadings but we find out from the king that they just sort of like pretend that they're gonna do it and then they bring all the creatures back and it kind of happens over and over again so it's just about her performing it's about her performing her power more than it is about her actually enforcing anything which is great because I don't want her to enforce this beheading situation since she has no regard for life but she just there's there's no conviction with anything that she's doing it's all the performance
1: the only conviction she has is basically i want to be able to win and i want it my way Mm -hmm. which is paint the roses red yes right so all of this is just it's my way it, it has to be done my way it's it's almost like when you have a child transported into this world that's supposed to represent adulthood you have the person that is the most powerful still acting like a child
0: yes there you go full circle (laughs) full circle and also i think that and maybe this is an american thing and like an american 90s kid thing and an american like lover of disney princesses thing But I think I, coming into like my early understanding of a movie like Alice in Wonderland, like I was just fascinated by all things royalty. And so I think like having grown up on Cinderella and Belle and, you know, again, this princess trope, I was primed to be excited about the queen. And like she was probably the most similar, at least in theory, to a lot of the other like fairy tales that I had. Been in contact with previously at the time when I first saw Alice in Wonderland. And yet she was so different than I expected her to be. Like, I was used to a queen being beautiful and kind and benevolent. And, like, in Alice in Wonderland, that is completely not what we see. And in a lot of ways, she's probably more true to most monarchs throughout history than the Disney fairy tales that I was familiar with before. But yeah, so she is like the one who's supposed to be the most in in power, the most in control, the most adult. She is, I think, probably the entry point for a lot of contemporary kids because kids understand what it means to be royal because it's aspirational. But yet she is the most childish. You
1: need to read and watch the movies because you have to meet the White Queen.
0: Okay, the White Queen.
1: Yes, she's the one played by Anne Hathaway in the Tim Burton
0: yes okay all right I need to watch the Tim Burton one (laughs) I am not great with like dark and spooky Roselle so I tend to stay away from Tim Burton it's not like I said it's it it has the darkness in it but
1: there is so much more beautiful saturated colors it's it's just to me like it's it's not too dark like this isn't like a bloody like
0: you know (laughs) yeah okay nobody's getting like hurt
1: no not not really no okay. no i mean yeah no i'm I'm trying to remember both movies no i think you're good i think you're good in the the squeamish factor and all of that okay but, like if you love um if you love like you know julie Taymor's visuals yeah you're gonna get a lot of that in these like just for the just for the costumes and all of that like the aesthetics alone okay. i think is why you should check it out it's pretty too. It's It's very beautiful. It's stunning. Yeah. Okay. All
0: right. So maybe I'll watch it. I'll add it to my list. In terms of other like big picture themes or points of exploration, um, something else that I came across while I was doing my research is that in addition to being a critique of the monarchy, this is also a critique of the sort of Victorian approach to childhood and the way that children were treated in the Victorian era. And I think this is because like we see Alice kind of being set loose in a place, again, with no rules, where up until this point, she'd been expected to be very controlled and well-behaved. Do you have any thoughts about that, Roselle?
1: In, in this point of view, this is definitely the privileged upper class. This isn't like, I mean, in reality, you've got kids working. Yeah. Right? During that era. So I think in this case, it's that that kind of a taste of what it's like to be like upper class, to be able to go to school and do that in, in like the Victorian era of her alice like and and it is it is i mean when you think right now when you think of the words victorian and you're describing you're describing something oh the school's very victorian and it's rules in your head you think oh geez there's a lot of rules right like it's just associated with that right it's not like you think or if somebody tells you oh you're going to this school and it's very hippie like and you think oh there's gonna be some very flexible rules here no like victorian you think draconian, almost like so many set of rules and etiquette and everything you have to follow.
0: I also think that like, we we sort of open on Alice being bored. And to your point about this being a window into a particular social class, like it's a privilege in this time period for Alice to be bored. Kids who were working out of necessity to help and support their families were never bored. And Alice is like literally laying on the grass like, oh, I wish there was something to do. And I'm sure her contemporaries who were not in her same socioeconomic position never would have been bored because they had work to do and a lot of responsibility on them. I mean, the ability to be bored, like I I mean, I've read
1: articles too that said that to be a child, you have to learn to be bored. Yeah. Like it's part, it's the, the only way that you could it's the only way for you to kind of develop your creativity is because if you're never bored, then you're never like, you never, your mind's not at rest and all of this stuff. How, how else are you you can sit there and daydream? Like there is a lot of power and value in daydreaming and not like having to do things all the time. And I think that that, that is definitely like if Alice was bored all the time, yeah, I would totally understand. This is the wonderland that she came up with. This isn't a go, go, go to school, like stress, manic anxiety, stress dream of like hitting all of your schedules, right?
0: Yeah. I've read a couple of articles too about how one of the biggest concerns of sort of like the youngest generation that's that's growing up now is that like the idea of boredom is going to be lost in device culture. And you yeah. know, I. I know everybody talks about the issues with devices and screens and all of that. And like, look, I have many devices and many screens in my life. And I think we all need them to a certain degree to do our work and to just kind of function in 2022. But it is kind of fascinating to think about what it will look like for a new generation of people who do not know how to be bored. Because as a young kid in the 21st century, there's always something that you can look at, listen to be involved with and I remember like I I remember especially in the summertime like we're recording this at the beginning of August I remember when I was on summer vacation sitting on the couch in the afternoon after like you know my mom was able to maybe take me to the pool for a few hours in the morning but then she had to go to work so then I would be home and like I can almost if I close my eyes I can like smell the sunscreen on my skin and hear the quiet of my house because I wasn't allowed to watch TV in the middle of the day and I'm just sitting on the couch and I don't have school and I've already read all my books and it's like, what am I gonna do? And I actually, I'm sort of nostalgic for that experience. Like I wish I could get that back and it makes me sad that that might be a thing that is going to the wayside for for the youngest babies out there. It is, there's a pressure
1: to be productive and you could see that again, with Alice, mm, mm. right? That pressure to be productive, and if I recall correctly, during the novel, she doesn't really get to catch her breath so much as she's just like being like pulled in every single direction, dealing with like fires and like, oh, look at this, look at that, like it's basically like swiping through. <laughs> TikTok like yeah. every there, there is that bit of a quality to the novel right like the way that the plot twists and that you're not like you're just on to the next thing like all these things are happening
0: yeah it's a little overstimulating yeah which is I would imagine a little bit what it's like to be a kid in 2022 <laughs> we're all a little overstimulated though I guess there's also a lot about identity in this book and about Alice questioning her identity both explicitly because we see for instance, the rabbit like thinks that she's Marianne, his his servant. Yeah. Um, and so there are moments where other characters in Wonderland are calling Alice by another name. And then there are times when she is very clearly saying to other characters, like, I don't know who I am anymore. There are moments when she is getting bigger, getting smaller, like embodying herself in different ways. And she's just always changing, which I think does fold into the conversation we were having earlier about Alice in Wonderland. as. A metaphor or an exploration of adolescence because I think so much of becoming a teenager is about figuring out who you are and sometimes getting that wrong and realizing that other people see you in a way that isn't necessarily authentic to the way you're experiencing yourself. But I was sort of fascinated by the many ways in which Lewis Carroll explores identity in different moments of the book, whether it is, again, through calling Alice the wrong name or Alice just kind of like having a meltdown like Alice does at one point maybe two points actually have meltdowns where she's like I have I am so tired of trying to figure out who I am and all of you weird authority figures yelling rules at me that I cannot keep up with and I am tired and that is what it feels like to be a teenager and also what it feels like sometimes to be an adult
1: um definitely like she's had that I mean again i refer to the flower scene Yes, they thought she was the flower yeah up until she corrected them and then they went nope get out
0: right yeah yeah there's just so much there's so much in this book and again i feel like if i came back to it again and again like every time would be a little bit different i also just think it's worth noting like that there is this this sense of darkness looming under everything and we have mentioned this especially with respect to the Tim Burton adaptation and there's a lot out there about whether or not this was a book that was actually intended for children and i think it's important to note that in 1865 when this book was published like there was no such thing as a YA section of a bookstore there was there was no Barnes and Noble to categorize all of these different age groups which would then guide authors in their prose so it was a little bit different but um, there are certainly a lot of arguments out there for kind of who Lewis Carroll's target audience may have been, although I don't know that it really matters. Similar to a Peter Pan, for example, like I think I think Alice is a character that uh, sort of surpasses all buckets of ages and, and it's a story that people can read at all different ages and learn something different.
1: Can we talk about the Mad Hatter? Yes,
0: let's talk about the Mad Hatter.
1: Okay, so you have a character that basically symbolizes colonization of Canada. Yeah. I say that because of the beaver, the beaver trade and how, and how that affected that and how you use lead, I believe it's lead or other chemicals to treat it so that it can be formed into those hats and wearing those hats for a prolonged period of time is how you get the Mad Hatter.
0: Okay. Okay. I see. I feel like I heard this at some point, but I, it's been a long time since I heard that history. That's really interesting. And he is just, he's mad. <laughs> They're all mad here, as he says. Yeah.
1: But it's, its to me, it's like, it's the one touchstone though of reality that she, like, yes, there is a queen in reality, right? Yeah. But I find that interesting that there is this one touchstone of reality that this is happening right now. But she, when she goes into this alternate world, you have people, like basically a gentleman in Victorian England who's wearing these beaver hats chemically treated beaver hats that are not good for you are ending up like this you know what I mean
0: yeah that's yeah now I want to do more research about that thank you for (laughs) thank you for adding that into the conversation so I think I know what your answer is going to be Roselle but I'd love for you to to prove me right prove me wrong share a little bit more on the whole now that we've had this in-depth discussion of Alice in Wonderland do you feel that the story continues to hold up in the years since you first became acquainted with it or has it let you down in some way?
1: It's like it's the it, it, it hasn't let me down in that it still has that interpretive quality and the relevance to modern day. like how many things can you say oh my gosh this is like it's it's because I think the way that he wrote it with. You know with all of the underlying criticism of class and the monarchy and everything else that he was just criticizing and basically like criticizing and putting into his opinions and writing it in a well-crafted novel and these themes are still very much relevant like right now
0: yeah i agree i think especially the the through line of arbitrary rules that are made by people in power without any care for how it might actually affect the people who are living in the places where they are in charge. So that, that stuck with me as well. I'm so glad I finally read the book and I'm, I appreciate you giving me the push to do that. I know a lot of listeners were anxious to hear this, this discussion. Listeners, I'm curious to hear uh, sort of how how all of this strikes you. I know we have major Alice fans in the audience and I wonder um, if they're more fans of the book or of the movie and if we have brought anything new to their attention today. But Roselle, I'm curious, what else you have been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners?
1: I recommend, and because we're talking about Victorian novels, I believe Austin is relevant, yes? Yes, definitely. Okay, so um, Farah Heron's Camilla Knows Best is a romance novel that is a retelling of Emma. Oh. And it's set in Toronto, and it's got like a South Asian, it's a South Asian romance, so I think readers would like to that's the
0: one that i'm going to pull out that is completely relevant to this discussion today perfect i love that (laughs) that sounds great i will definitely link to that in the show notes for this episode and i am a big fan of emma so i have to add it to my list as well and roselle as we record you have a new book coming out but when this episode drops it will be out in the world the book is called sophie goes lonely hearts club i'm looking behind you in your office and you have your beautiful book covers Lined up they're so pretty and i can see sophie go and it is honestly like my favorite color scheme yellow is my favorite color and i love the pink and the orange and the red it's beautiful tell us everything about sophie go and her story it's set in toronto
1: if you love food if you love families um you love a dash of fabulism contemporary magic it's all in there it's about a matchmaker who comes home to start a start a new career that's sophie And her mother outs her as being a failure and not having graduated at a major function. So her reputation's in tatters. And what she ends up doing is in the condo that she lives, she finds seven septuagenarian bachelors that she's going to try to match to try to save her reputation. So it's not, I find it interesting that there are a few readers who have already told me that said, I'm getting a hint of Snow White in this. Oh, interesting. Because of seven. There's the Seven Dwarves and yeah. there's Snow White. but yes, there's it's got a lot of whimsy. There's an underlying there's an underlying melancholy in it, but it's balanced with Sophie's optimism and whimsy in the way that she sees the world. The only content warning I would give you is that if you have dealt with parental abuse or emotional abuse, that is something that she has to she has to deal with as as a reader. I'm just giving you
0: the heads up for that. Thank you for that content warning. Well, it sounds like a delightful book. I, I always appreciate a book uh, that it leads with whimsy. And so I love that you included that in your description. Listeners, go make sure you check out the show notes for this episode for links to all of Roselle's work, including Sophie Goes Lonely Hearts Club, which is now available wherever books are sold. Roselle, thank you for going down the rabbit hole through the looking glass. All the things with me today. It was really nice chatting with you. Thank you so
1: much for having me, and I really hope that you beefed up your TBR with a bunch of things to check
0: out, or to watch, sorry, to watch list. My my TBR, my TBW, I mean, all of my pop culture consumption lists are constantly growing, so you know, I just need a lot of time, I need all the time in the world, I need to be in a wonderland where time doesn't exist, so I can just watch all the things I want to watch and read all the things I want to read.
1: That's called a watchcation.
0: I want to go on this.
1: You stay in, you order in sushi or whatever and just watch everything that you want. Everybody else buggers off.
0: Roselle, honestly, that is the best thing I've ever heard. The best advice I've ever gotten from a guest. I need to add a watchcation to my schedule. Uh, I will let you know if and when it happens, when it happens, because I need to do it. And Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland will certainly be high on the list. Thank you so much for that advice. And again, for your time today, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was so fun chatting with you. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes, inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.